You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Thank you, Harry. Harry. I love the, the line in there that he is the, the hope of all mankind. You think of that child being born in Bethlehem, and it's this little child, this frail thing, and he is the hope of all mankind. And Actually, that line in that song is a, a great segue into uh, the message this morning, the series of, of messages that we are starting to, to go through here as we think about Jesus, why he is the, the savior of all mankind. When we talk of Jesus, we often speak of him as our prophet, our priest, and our king. So we are taking up a short series on the offices of Christ. If you were with us last week, we started talking about the threefold office of Christ. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. I would say that that kind of language isn't new to most of us. But what might be near new is to hear him described that way. Yes, he is our prophet, but what does that mean? Yes, he is our priest, but what does that mean? Yes, he is our king, but what does that mean? Last week, we looked at Jesus' prophet, and essentially we pointed out from Deuteronomy chapter 18, coupled with other passages concerning the inspiration of Scripture, what the author of Hebrews says in the first chapter about the nature of God speaking to us today, that Jesus is the prophet that really fulfilled the office of prophet. He was the prophet with a capital P, so to speak. And the significance of this is that our Scriptures are God's word to us And just as God's word to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 18 was sufficient for them in the time they were living, going into the land that God had promised to give them, so our scriptures are sufficient for us in this time as well. We don't need outside revelation. We don't need fresh words from God. This word is enough. It's all we need. Everything we need for life and godliness, that we might be complete, lacking nothing, equipped for every good work. So we have the God who speaks through his Son in the Scriptures, and next we move on to the the office of priest. And to do that, we're going to look at the ninth chapter of Hebrews. If you would... Turn there with me, and let's pick up in verse 11. If you would, stand with me as we read Scripture together. Now, let's back up a little bit. Speaking of the Holy of Holies, verse 7 But into the second room, the Holy of Holies, the high priest goes. But he does once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this, agree, this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscious, uh, consciousness conscious of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to work in our hearts and to guide us so that we would understand and, and comprehend what you're saying to us. Lord, we pray that you would work in, in such a way that it would glorify and exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ, that what he has done for us would become absolutely clear, and if there is somebody here that hasn't placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you would convict them of their sin, that they would respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you do that today, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Christ as high priest. In the text here, we see the author pointing us to the first tabernacle. How there are two rooms in this tabernacle, and the rooms are divided by a veil. There is the, the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place and the holy of holies. And the priest routinely went into the holy place. But the holy of holies, only the high priest would go. And once a year, he would go in there on the Day of Atonement. And the author here is showing the reader that all of this points to a greater reality. It points to Christ, the better and more perfect high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice of himself that actually dealt with guilt and shame. At this point, we need to take just a few moments and, and think about what happened on the Day of Atonement. As you can imagine, the Day of Atonement was a, a solemn day. It happened once a year, and the purpose of that day was to deal with the sins of the people. 
These things are described in Leviticus chapter 16. And all of this began with, with Aaron and the subsequent high priests of Israel coming into the Holy of Holies. Of course, God was clear that the high priest couldn't just come into the Holy of Holies whenever he felt like it, lest he die. The people were to understand that the atonement for sin happened God's way, and anything other than God's way was unacceptable. So before entering the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, needed to to clean and, and bathe himself, put on special clothing. And then he sacrificed a a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family. Notice that the high priest needed to be clean. The blood of the bull was then sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And then Aaron would, would go out and he would bring two goats. One to be sacrificed because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, That's in Leviticus 16.16. And this blood was then sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would go out. And the high priest would place his hands on the head of the other goat and confess the rebellion and the wickedness of the people of Israel. And then that goat with with an appointed man who would go out and release it into the wilderness The goat carried on it all the sins of the people, which were forgiven for another year. In a nutshell, this is what happened on the Day of Atonement. Look at verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews 9 for a moment. It's critical speaking of the Old Covenant. The author says that both the gifts and the sacrifices that were given cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect. Or as some versions say, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What the author of Hebrews is talking about here is shame and guilt. Shame and guilt are tricky words. We need to be careful with those words and make sure that we're on the same page. David Powelson, a well-known biblical counselor who wrote a great many books who just passed away not long ago, said that guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard. Shame is a sense of failure before the eyes of someone. In other words, guilt is about disobeying a law or a code, knowing what you are to do and not doing it. That's guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is how I perceive others see me or how I see myself in light of what I have done. So the difference, according to Powelson, is this. And he gives this an illustration. He says, if I know how that I should treat people, I should treat them with kindness and patience, but instead I'm continually irritable, I continually lose my temper, then I should feel guilt. This is true guilt. But if I have four preschoolers at home, and I believe that photo teams from House Beautiful magazine should come at any moment to see a spotless house, I might feel guilty because my house looks like an EPA, a disaster site. He says, this is false guilt because I'm living up to an artificial standard. 
according to Powelson, there's also what he calls true and toxic shame. So if I have sinned against God and offended God, or I've sinned against another and hurt my relationship with them, I should feel a sense of shame. Shame is a healthy heart response to the fact of a torn relationship with others or God. A healthy heart response to the fact of a torn relationship with others or God. On the other hand, if my sense of shame does not reflect reality, then there's a problem. So if I've not actually done anything to incur someone's dissatisfaction, but I believe I have, this could lead to a false shame. Or if I wrongingly believe that somebody that I have, something that I have done has led to an irreparable breach in that relationship, then I might react to my sense of shame by hiding myself in much the same way Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden after eating the forbidden fruit. So keeping these definitions in mind, we've all committed sin against God. We've all violated real standards, real laws. Therefore, there is real guilt and real shame that comes into play in our lives. And I think sometimes, more often than not, probably, we think of our violation of God's law much like the violation of traffic laws. We get caught speeding, and the police officer doesn't really have any personal grudge against you. He or she comes up to your car, asks for your information, then gives you a ticket, and you go about your day. The police officer is just doing his job. You violated that law. You didn't personally offend him. You just violated the law. But the speed limit is a real law, and you violated it. There's real guilt. And we view often God's law like speeding. God is like the police officer. He punishes sin. He, he deals with that. That's his job, but he's not really personally invested in all of it. But that isn't true. That's why the distinction between guilt and shame is so important, because God abhors sin. We read last week of God being so angry with the Israelites that he told Moses that he would wipe them out and start over. Moses interceded for them, and he didn't, of course. In the New Testament, in Romans 1.18, we read it this way. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. R.C. Sproul called sin cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason in that those in the category of creature who should be subject to the creator have pushed him aside and taken on the role of creator for themselves. Sin is the creature saying to the creator, I've got this. I know a better way. I'll do it my own way because I can. Sin offends God and should produce real shame because we recognize sin for what it is. 
We have done something that has damaged that relationship. And there should be a real heartfelt response to that. That is shame. So here's the point. The sacrifices in the Old Testament could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, there was still guilt and shame. Think about it for a moment. One moment after Yom Kippur, one moment after the day of, well, let's just be gracious. The next day after the day of atonement, you commit a sin, inadvertently, accidental, whatever it was. The next day, there is guilt again. There's shame that accompanies that. So really, the guilt and the shame in the conscience of the worshiper were never ending in that cycle. Verse 11. But Christ. Those are the two greatest words in the Bible. All of this, the tabernacle, all of that pointed to something much greater. It had to. Why? Because what was to cleanse the conscience couldn't do it. It didn't release anyone in any meaningful way from their guilt and their shame. Just pause for a moment. It would be foolish to think that in a room this size, that there was no guilt and shame. I would guess that for some, the guilt and the shame has been for years and years. That your conscience isn't clear. That you know that you have or are violating God's commands in some way. Perhaps, perhaps you're, you're living in sin. You're still living with the consequences that that sin has taken, and that sin has taken a, a toll on your life and the life of your family and your relationships. Perhaps you've sinned against another person. Perhaps you've hurt them in some way. Perhaps you were unkind and angry, to use the illustration we mentioned earlier that Dave Powelson talked about. Whatever it is, you know that you were wrong. And there is guilt. And you know that there are other people who are hurt because of your actions and you feel horrible about it. That's real shame. Whatever it is, I would say that in this room, there are people that are living in guilt and shame. On some level, I read of a guy that before he was married, carried on secret relationships with married women. And for some reason, there was an attraction for him to that. He liked the danger, the risk, whatever it was, there was something that attracted him to those kind of relationships. But even in the midst of that, he says he was under the tremendous weight of guilt and shame. Guilt because he knew he was wrong. Every time he did that, he knew that he was wrong and he was violating a standard that was much higher than himself. He didn't just feel wrong, he was wrong. He was also under a tremendous weight of shame in how he saw himself. He looked down on himself. 
He said, there were ways in which I just hated who I was. But I kept doing it. I kept the same pattern. Those who are addicted to pornography or involved in some other kind of sexual sin, those who are cheating on their taxes or involved in anything like that that's ongoing. I mean, the list goes on and on of those who could be under this kind of weight of, of guilt and shame. But here's the thing with guilt and shame, and I'll let Kent Hughes say it. He says it this way. As sinners, we have an inner consciousness of guilt that keeps us from drawing near to God. Sin had that effect in the garden when Adam and Eve fled from the voice of God, and it has that same effect on us. This doesn't sound right, but it is. This kind of guilt, knowing that we are wrong and the shame that accompanies it actually has that effect on, of, on us, that instead of feeling guilt and shame, we run to, to God. We don't do that. We hide ourselves. It seems counterintuitive, but that's the way it is. We run from God. We don't run to him. We run and we hide ourselves. And usually we hide ourselves in the same things that cause the guilt and shame in the first place. If it's drugs and alcohol, we feel guilt and shame out of the substance abuse. But at the same time, we run to that. It was that way in the garden. It was that way for the person I was talking about a moment ago in his relationships with married women. And it was the same way for me. In college, I made some poor choices. I felt overwhelming guilt for them. Why? Because I knew I was guilty. I was raised in church. I knew God was not happy with me for the things that I had been doing. The shame was incredible. Going to church didn't help because it just intensified the guilt and the shame. During that time, I didn't go to church much. I threw myself into the same actions that produced the guilt and shame in the first place. Why do we do that? I don't know, but we do. I'm not the only one. The point is that the sacrifices and all these things that the high priest did on the Day of Atonement couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, and there is nothing that you can do living in the state of guilt and shame to perfect your conscience outside of Jesus Christ. So there was a, a real way in which the office of high priest and the sacrifices that were made, the tabernacle itself pointed to a better reality, a reality that would actually deal with the guilt and shame of the worshiper. Notice the last words of verse 10. Imposed until the time of reformation. What we have here is a reference to a new covenant. In other words, there was something lacking in the old covenant. And that is, it couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the old covenant points to a new covenant. The old covenant was law. And laws are not the problem. Laws are good. The law is good. We are the problem. We are people under a curse of the fall. And when confronted with the law, when we're confronted with God's standard of conduct, 
of living when confronted with a mirror of God's holy standard for us. Sinful people continually fall short. But just the same, the old covenant said, if you keep these laws, you will live. You will be blessed. You will inherit eternal life. And the problem is that was unattainable. The old covenant law couldn't perfect the conscience. The new covenant, however, this is what verse 11 is speaking about when the author says, but Christ. In other words, what the author is saying here is that Christ has done what the old covenant sacrifices could not do. He didn't just cover our sins, but he took those sins upon himself, removing them by his death on the cross. Think for a moment of the most hideous thing that you've ever done. That thing that still haunts you at night. That great truth, that hideous thing. If people were really to know that truth about you, they would condemn you instantly. Whether it's an action that you did in the past, whether it's the thoughts that are going through your head, that if people around you would know those things about you, they would condemn you. But God knows that secret. He sees that sin. He has placed that sin on his son, and you will not be condemned for it. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, which is death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Get this. He says he took that sin and nailed it to the cross. But then you go down to verse 16 and we read, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In other words, in Christ, in Christ, those who have been united with Christ in faith, in Christ, the conscience is clean. It is perfected. Guilt and shame have been removed because Christ took that guilt and that shame For you, he dealt with it on the cross once and for all. It is no more. But do you see how Christ did this? Where the high priest passed through the outer tent, the holy place, into the most holy place, and sprinkled blood on the place of atonement of animals that had been sacrificed outside the tabernacle and interceded for the people. Jesus' priestly ministry opens the way into the heavenly sanctuary itself, we are told. The tabernacle was a a physical representation of God's presence among the people. That's why it was holy and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. But Christ himself came to earth and dwelt among us. The fullness of deity in body dwelled. Christ himself dwelt among us in his person. He tabernacled among us. Christ, the better high priest, didn't enter into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood of animals, but it was his own blood 
that was given, securing an eternal redemption. That's the end of verse 12. Look at verse 14. But it is through the blood of Christ as he offered himself. He was perfect without blemish to do what? You see that there? Christ did what the old covenant could not do. He purified the conscience. He removed the guilt and shame. The old covenant couldn't deal with guilt and shame, but Christ did on the cross because he was the perfect sacrifice securing an eternal redemption. Let me show you this again. Look at verse 22. Clearly speaking of the law, the old covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The text says that nearly everything needed to be purified with blood. Because, like if you couldn't afford a sacrifice, there was a provision made. But the principle of the old covenant was blood purified. And of course, we recognize that the entire system pointed toward Christ and his work on the cross as he shed his blood for us as the perfect sacrifice. That's why we read in verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hand, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see what's happening here in the old covenant, the high priest washed himself. Why? Because he was unclean. And the washing was to make sure that his sacrifice for the people would be accepted. Then he would offer the sacrifice. Just as the people were continually unclean, so was the one offering the sacrifice. So was the high priest. Not to mention the animal that was sacrificed. The animal was supposed to be without spot or blemish. But we know that all of creation, including every animal that was sacrificed, was tainted from the get-go. But this isn't so with Christ. He took our sins upon himself and suffered and died for them and now sits at the right hand of God advocating for us. Verses 25 and 26. Christ, as the perfect high priest, as the perfect sacrifice, doesn't have to offer himself over and over again. As the high priest, Jesus is always perfect. And as the perfect sacrifice, he is always perfect. And as God himself, the sacrifice was sufficient for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. It is so important. Christ is the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice. Let me say this again. His sacrifice was perfect in that he was human. Perfectly human. Unlike any animal that was sacrificed for human sin, Jesus could actually take the place for us because he was human. An animal couldn't do that. But he, he didn't just, it wasn't important that he was just human. It was important that he was perfectly human. That he was human as we are, 
but without sin, without no, without any guilt, without any shame, perfectly righteous. It was also important that Jesus was God in flesh. The sacrifice was infinite. It covered the sins of every person that would ever place their faith, their trust in him. This is the point of verses 26 and 27. He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He accomplished this on the cross. Jesus Christ is not a potential savior. His death in on the cross, did not make just salvation possible. It accomplished redemption for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. When one trusts in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to them. It's given to them. All of the obedience of Christ is given to them. In other words, we don't have to continually go back to Christ to get more righteousness infused into us. He put an end to sacrifices by the sacrifice of himself. He was the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Christ is our prophet in that he speaks to us through his word. He's the prophet to which all other prophets pointed. Christ is our great high priest, the high priest to which all other high priests pointed in that he himself offered the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself to do what the Old Testament or the Old Covenant could not do or nothing else could ever do for that matter to free us from guilt and shame. I want, you to point, I want to point you to, to one more text in, in closing. If you would just go to 1 Corinthians 6 with me for a moment. Start in verse 9. I think we see here something of how Christ deals with guilt and shame. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pause. Unrighteous people don't get to heaven. If you're not right with God, you don't get to heaven. Murderers don't get to heaven. Liars don't get to heaven. Thieves don't get to heaven. Adulterers don't get to heaven. He goes on. Do not be deceived. Pause again. He says this because there are some deceiving themselves into thinking that they are righteous when they are not. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, do not be deceived. They're thinking they're righteous when they're not. I mean, we need to look no further than the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels and countless churchgoers in our day to see this truth. I'll keep reading. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, not thieves, not the greedy, not drunkards or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is one of those texts that you can read in, in, in two ways. We can look at this list and say something like, I'm okay, I'm not a drunkard, I'm not a homosexual, I don't swindle people, and I'm not a thief. I think I'm okay here. And I would suggest that some of us, as we were reading this, were reading it this way. 
But Paul has already warned us against reading it this way. When he says, do not be deceived. He is saying that we're all unrighteous and therefore do not deserve to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's a sampling of sins that damn. That's what it is. Second way of reading this text, the right way is the one where you read those words, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and your heart sinks a little bit. Your heart sinks. Because you start thinking, it says adultery. Jesus said, if you committed somebody lust in your heart, I mean, if Jesus, is con- if Jesus is concerned about the heart and what goes on in the heart damns and he doesn't just care about the outward actions, then where am I at? I mean, if that's all there is, there would be no hope for any of us because we all fall into that camp. Verse 11, and such were some of There's hope. And such were some of you. I was. I deserve to not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But you keep reading. I was washed. I was made right with God through Jesus Christ. He took my guilt. He took my shame. It's only in Jesus that we don't have to live in guilt and shame of knowing that we don't inherit the kingdom of God. Because in Christ, his righteousness is is given to us and he's cleansed us from all that unrighteousness. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. We don't have to continue that same cycle over and over again that in guilt and shame we run further from God. But... Christ Jesus being our perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice for sins, we are, as Paul said, once we were far off, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ through his sacrifice. The guilt and shame has been dealt with in Ephesians 2.13. We don't have to run further. We don't run back to the same things that brought the guilt and shame, trying to deal with that. But in his perfect sacrifice, we are brought near to him. So if you're here this morning and you're living under the weight of guilt and shame, that you know that you're living in in some way in violation of what God desires in your life, that's guilt. You're living in the the shame that accompanies in that. You know that your actions have separated you from God, from, from others. Whatever the situation is in your life, please know that there is no other remedy for guilt and shame outside of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. In Matthew 1.21, the angel speaking to Joseph says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. He is the only remedy because he's the great high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice and shed his own blood dealing with the sin once and for all.
So the question then comes, what is the proper response to what Christ has done? Christ came to bear our sins. He sacrificed himself. He took our sins on himself. Died a a horrible death. What is our response to that? Simple. It's faith and repentance. We respond to Jesus in, in faith. That's believing that Jesus is who he said he is. That he's the perfect sacrifice for sin. He's completely human. He took our place. He's completely God. His sacrifice was enough to to deal with our guilt, our shame. He's the perfect remedy for our guilt, the one who took our shame so that we don't have to bear it. He bore it on himself. We trust and rely on him as our only hope because without Jesus, we're left in our own sin and will not inherit the kingdom of God. In faith, we commit ourselves to him. This This is faith. In committing yourself to him alone, you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. This is repentance. Literally, repentance means a change of mind about something. The Greek word is metanoia. It's to change your mind about sin. It's to come to the knowledge that sin damns. Sin doesn't bring enjoyment. It brings guilt and shame. No longer does one see sin in a positive light, but something for which Christ died. Therefore, we turn from our sin, we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Christ, and our lives then are, are then characterized by faith, by clinging to Christ in the gospel and repentance. Turning from sin to Christ. So the Christian life is characterized by faith and repentance, not by guilt and shame because Christ dealt with it on the cross once and for all. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.